0: Welcome to the Exodus of Magic podcast. This is Dungeon Master Eddie coming at you with episode 11, Throwaway Sessions. Now, when I say throwaway session, it has the, the idea that this is a session that, that doesn't matter. And that's true on a very narrow, very limited direction. The idea is it's not going to have an immediate effect uh, to these to the characters at this moment. Um, What throwaway sessions you're usually built from are a couple of situations. One, it's it's a one-off where you you have different characters in the same world. A way to to give a break to what is currently going on in the campaign. Let people play with different ideas. For example, if I've been a wizard for 10 levels, maybe I want to play some sort of rogue archetype. At least for a little bit. It's a chance to give the characters, uh, secondary characters that they can play with to test different skill sets that you can repeatedly bring back in these little one-off throwaway sessions. Uh, Number two, sometimes members of the party just can't make it. If you have five players at the table and two of them cannot make it one session, but everybody else still wants to play, um, these little throwaway sessions are a chance for them to play either with their current characters in a way that shouldn't emphasis on shouldn't dramatically affect the plot uh, even if it usually does and uh, it could be a chance for them to play with different characters with um, those different skill sets in the same world where you can by doing one-offs with those other characters it's easy to plug in two or three at a a given moment's notice to run some minor event uh, where they still get to play you still get to run have fun sharpen skills learn a little bit more without everybody losing out because a couple players have something that comes up in life that prevents them from being at the table for that session. And then uh, the third kind of throwaway session is really the in-betweeners. You've, you've hit a major plot point in your campaign, and you know people just need to step back and, and really kind of savor it, and doing a, a little throwaway, separate what-have-you, is a chance for that to really bake into the the player a little bit longer that they're not already rushing off to do the next thing. The idea that their characters really get to enjoy what they've accomplished and the party can still play, and and the idea that you by skipping that session, it's your your party's had a celebration, or they've done something to really appreciate the momentous thing they've done. Uh, And for a DM, it's a chance to really sit back and, and be impressed with what's happened in the story and give yourself... A little extra time to flesh out what's next. Uh, My my dungeon master styles. I have major plot points, and I I understand in a three act structure. I understand where Act Two is going to start, Act Three is going to and finish, where Act Three starts, and and where Act Three is going to finish. And there's multiple ways to get from one end of an act to another. Right? You're you're there's certain milestones you're going to have along the way. There's this information here, this item there. Uh, There are contacts that are going to be made. in, in adventure modules, they're very linear, um, not, not on, almost um, on the rails where you, you're going to be directed from A to B to C. Uh, but this, letting people spread out and decide where they want to go for me, helps flesh out the world by, by letting me know what they want to see, so what I need to focus on. Um, so after these major plot points, having uh, you know that in-between session where we're doing a cute little throwaway, gives me extra time for the main campaign where I know, all right, these are, are their points of interest in the next leg of their journey. This gives me some more time to start fleshing that out so it doesn't all need to be ready at the word go. So these these sessions where I, I use the word throwaway because origi- initially to me they felt oh, this is just a little something for us to do that's not going to matter in, in the long term. And because of that, the, the phrase stuck. So it is... As we talk about it more, it is more of a mislead, right? This is this is something that's built on old habits. It's, I, dare I say, I compare it to a, a Supreme Court ruling, I believe, it was in the 1910s, 1920s, somewhere around the, the Great Depression, where a tomato in the United States is legally a vegetable, despite having seeds on the interior and biologically being a fruit. Because the Supreme Court said everybody thinks of a tomato as a vegetable, ergo... For packaging and what have you, it is a vegetable. And that ruling has never been overturned because nobody really cared to, about it. And now it's just one of those legal oddities in the United States. Which, which then leads to the, the joke of the intelligent character knows tomato tomatoes are fruit. The wise character knows that you don't put a tomato in a fruit salad. Now, with throwaway sessions, one of the big advantages they have is they empower dungeon masters. Like okay. a first good example of that is they can help you patch the narrative. As players go through adventures, they tend to miss things. Right you you can't you can't just grab their character by the head and say no look at this this is important flash big lights around it uh, like shoehorning in an NPC at some point might feel uh, overbearing right it's like hey hey you morons over here right you you don't want to do that. A lot of this is the players need to discover these things for themselves and throwaway sessions are a chance to catch up on that hiccup, right? It's a chance for you to look at what information did they miss that they are going to need going forward? What item did they miss that they're going to need going forward? And this is a chance to introduce that uh, in such a way that they're not now well behind on plot points, where they're going to be in trouble because they missed something. An example of this: the players end up in a cave system, and they're they're going to get information on the plot. Like you're supposed to overhear that these guys are talking that they're really working for this other entity, and like these these goblins in the war and are being paid very well by this weird human. Who only wants them to attack certain villages for whatever reason now like somebody doesn't make the perception or listen check uh, somebody sees to the two goblins and before they stop to listen they just roll for initiative or hit them with arrows or whatever and suddenly this plot point has just dissolved and it's intuitive to to assume that they'll just figure out that this other human down the road is the bad guy anyway but in order to, to really flesh out that this is somebody they need to worry about, and it's not more than somebody simply causing problems in the city, you want to connect the dots, that there's, this person is organized and is part of something much larger, and if you just go and whack this person, it doesn't solve the issues, even if you're just you know offing the villain, because there's more information to be pulled out of this. Like this leads into a larger thread that leads into the larger idea of a campaign. So down the road, you could have a little one-off session where there's some band of goblins from this group who, who are busy trying to get to some place to make contact with this guy because, they, you know, if they're going to keep doing this, they need more money because these adventurers showed up and just burned out their um, their gang that was doing all of this work. And it's a chance for the party to, to listen and maybe shoe in a little bit of a pre-initiative monologue to, to get that information to the party. Or, or they... they get everybody, and now all of a sudden there's a missive on these goblins written in very bad goblin hand that's broken that will help connect that thread. Another idea is, oh, we forgot this relevant magic item or key or any other object that's important to the plot. But now that the place where it was being stored is compromised, the adversaries need to take this item and move it to a more secure location and it's a chance for the party to happen on them while that move to a secure location is happening, giving them another opportunity to get a hold of this item and then continue on with the plot without the dungeon master having to do major uh, rewrites. Now the second power of these throwaway Sessions is more for the dungeon master and a chance to patch the narrative. <clears throat> what we find as is, is Dungeon Masters is we, we have a lot of planning that goes into this, especially if you've uh, built your own world and are building your own campaign from scratch and you're trying to lay out the plot lines of what needs to be done. Good players are, uh, in essence, play testers of your idea. Uh, they're going to find the holes in the plot. And what these throwaway sessions do Especially if you can plan that some of them will eventually happen. You should always make sure in your mind there will be some in the bank to deal with these things. The players can have these find these plot holes and say this doesn't make any sense. And instead of like being taken aback like, uh, well, um ye- okay, then it's tied to whatever. You can just look well, I guess it doesn't make sense right now, does it? Make it all feel like it's part of the plan. And then when you do one of these throwaway sessions, you know, this is your chance to bring in the backhoe and fill in the plot hole, right? And and you make it look like it was planned the whole time because you've built up this thing to have these secondary sessions to accomplish some of these things, and it, it gives you this feel that other other adventuring groups in the world are are involved and all playing into this, and then people can uh, get a, a wider view of the world and. If they don't listen to my podcast it makes you feel really, really smart and look really smart because ah, this is this is some Hitchcock level brilliance right here, right? This is this is the plot twists all, you know, looping back on each other in ways we didn't see. So in an example is you have a situation where why would the king's daughter be doing this? You know, the king's daughter, who's usually out there helping people, be doing this this thing. It is out of character for her. She, she wouldn't be the villainous. Um, it doesn't make sense with how the bad guys have acted up to this point. Uh, and at that point, you don't need to think of it on the fly. But maybe down the road in a throwaway session, you you find out. Uh, you know she's she's secretly part of a cult, or she's been enchanted in some way, much like the the weird. Blood of Kali and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom where it it is a sort of mind control or you find out that she's been kidnapped and replaced and and whoever the person is that is taking over for them uh, looking the part is doing most of what they need to be doing on a grand level being seen as this amazing person where when you get close things don't pass the sniff test comparable to um, the superhero group The Seven in The Boys. That all the marketing makes them look brilliant, and when you actually get to know them, they are not the heroes. So these these opportunities to patch the narrative can also help flesh out the story in the long run. Right? Like this is, when these holes are found out, you have time to ruminate on them, uh, you go back and you think about them, and you can find a way to incorporate this in where your players are now discovering something that, oh, we didn't realize this was part of the whole thing. Uh, and you can... You can go from there, and lessons like this will help you uh, smooth out your own narrative as you are building the plots. And then number three, it lets you test ideas in a non-committal space. When you have a throwaway session, you can you can try certain things to see if they'll stick, right? bringing in... Maybe another another race or another clan or another group to test how they're received as villains. Um, comparably, I I think of Star Trek Voyager, where in, in the beginning you had this this group the Kazon, uh, sec, the different Kazon sects, and specifically the Kazon Nistrum, who was the the main adversary that was chasing them throughout the Delta Quadrant, which had a chance to be interesting. It was something they they started to build on, but arguably the writing wasn't really there for what they were trying to do it was clear they weren't organized enough to, to cause that much of an issue and, and ultimately if Voyager is going to make it home these guys aren't going to chase them 70,000 light years it didn't, didn't really make sense and and so they, they pivoted oh look you're in the Delta Quadrant which is where we met the Borg and it makes sense that the Borg can go anywhere so they can be a reoccurring pain in the butt and there's reasoning and logic behind it and even if it then overuse the borg to take away the mystique so these are once again you, you can test the ideas like that where is this this villain going to work is this this type of adversary going to work because um, as a dm you, you throw things in front of the players but you want to make sure it makes sense from a flavor standpoint that it does have uh, an impact to how the players view the world where this is an adversary they want to engage and take down this isn't Simply the classic '80s staple guest star villain of the week, uh, where you know that these are just these horrible putzes, like you know Michael Ironside or Brian James show up as as you would expect, and they're really bad guys. And then in half an hour, they've gotten their butts kicked. Uh, you want to you want to have something that has a little more of a lasting impact than that. And and once again, you can test these ideas, test the ideas of, of spells you've created. Uh, New, new magic items and how they might affect a given world and, and see how all of that rolls up and how you can fold that into your campaign, if it's going to work, if it's not going to work. Now, there, there are some examples from my history uh, to look at throwaway sessions uh, and, and how they were used to... Uh, enhance campaigns correct issues in campaigns um, or or even force dms to to adapt to things that they thought were meaningless that the players have have given meaning to and sometimes it helps bridge the gap uh, in understanding between the players and the dungeon master about why we're at the table i've talked before about the power of why we play and the importance of the dungeon master understanding why everybody's at the table so they can help build that narrative, especially rookie dungeon masters. As when when I get to the fifth of these these examples, you will understand. Now, the first example is is for me the big one. I spoke about it in episode three. It is the party where I had two players who wanted to play. They made it to Sigil before the other players, and then had some number of hours to run around before the other players showed up, and. In essence, they work to to cause a riot because a, a throwaway villain that uh, ultimately wasn't going to be recurring but had enough history with them that it would make it interesting gave them an opportunity to do something that would not have a larger impact in the overall story, or so I thought. Uh, and what ends up happening is they... In order to get this guy in trouble, they want to make it look like he he caused this problem and started a riot. But instead, they were too successful. And what ends up happening is they get banned from Sigil for causing these problems. uh, Because the powers that be aren't stupid. Uh, And what that helped solve is I was able to use this to solve the Walmart issue. Uh, I mean, the power level of magic items in three five is very different from fifth edition, uh, with you know, even even compared to second edition. I, I would say three five three three five has on par the strongest magical items of any system that ha- that can have the greatest effect on a campaign world, and you are limited by the size of the area. Like how big is the local city? Do you have a wizard involved? Are there is there a priestly temple that can help? Um, so you have restrictions on how big you can get, and when you get to a place like Sigil, which is the nexus of the world with doorways that'll take you literally anywhere throughout all D&D multiverses, it becomes a lot easier to, to put together a shopping list and have a high-fidelity uh, chance of getting exactly what your characters want, even if it's not what they need, which then becomes a problem from a balance standpoint. So what ends up happening is they get blocked off from Sigil, and now they're forced to deal with the restrictions of magical items on their planes or other planes that they can get to. Uh, And at this point, it kind of brings the game back down to a normal level, all because we had a throwaway session where they caused havoc, and there was uh, a punishment for what they had done. As much as they might complain that, no, they should not have been punished. Uh, Number two, and this was a chance to lay future groundwork. My friend Tom had run a campaign, and we were running through, and over the course of the campaign, we had done something to get on the radar of Dispater, who's, I believe, the the second ring of the uh, Outer Plane of Hell in 3rd edition. And we'd, we'd cause some issues, but once again, there's once you get away from home planes, there there's a lot a potential deity can do, but there are restrictions based on how far they have to go to get it. So there was a throwaway session where we had played other characters uh, who would be NPCs later on that we would engage with to to help with the situation where we had found Dispater's agents having messed with the party in a very specific way, and we were trying to stop what was happening. And it was a chance to come in and, once again, use different power sets, uh, the chance to, to try different skill sets to see what these characters can do. Uh, I had originally played a straight evoker, master evoker, uh, dwarf and wizard, uh, and coming back in this other session, I, I built an elven mystic theater so I can, in essence, open as many of the books as possible and have, have all these spells... Uh, at my command, uh, knowing full well that you still only get cast one a turn, but to, to have the ultimate Swiss Army Knife compendium in front of me. And then we engaged with the minions who had turned um, the the main characters uh, into iron statues and were trying to drag them back to the second ring of hell in order to punish them because we had caused problems for Dispater and, and messed with his influence on the prime material plane in a way that made him very angry Uh, and it was a chance to introduce the idea that this is where the plot is going and it was an understanding that there was going to be a degree of of meta involved in here that we we now have in essence a vision of the future which was how this was played is this was what we did was a dream sequence that played out in the minds of all the players so we could see what was coming how we're going to do this, the people that we're going to interact with to help us out later on, and and figure out a way around the issue we ran into. And it was was brilliant work uh, by Tom, the first time he was dungeon mastering, because it then imparted this information to us while letting us help craft that narrative so that he could just lay out points and then we provide the dialogue. So it's a chance to share information while making the players feel involved and getting to play with new things you don't normally get to play with, especially if you've been in a campaign with the same characters for over a year. Now the third one uh, is one of the campaigns I'm running now uh, with the players I call the Rooks because I have a bunch of rookies at the table for this. And this was a throwaway session where two of my players couldn't be there uh, because they had a COVID outbreak at work, so they just could not be at the session and and one of them had gotten sick. Thankfully, they've, they've all pulled through. Um, but what ends up happening is, all right, we're traveling through the woods and we're in a, a strange place where this happens on such short notice uh, and especially with other new players at the table, I can't just have them make new characters. It would take the entire session. We wouldn't do anything and these characters would be useless. So knowing that they're out exploring something in the woods, the idea was, we're going to find a body, but it's not a dead body. You no, know, this is somebody who'd been who'd been attacked, whoever had attacked him had been dealt with, and then this person was just bandaged up and made comfortable and left here there's no no understanding, no no understanding why, no reasoning, no clues, but as this is a good aligned party, and this works, the two people who weren't there for the session, thereby were going to take a look and guard over this guy while the other three players went. And you know, did some minor search and see could they find more clues in the area? So when the party comes back together in the next session, you haven't missed anything. For the two characters who are gone, the three other characters get to play, and they'll have new information to share for the overarching story. It works amazingly well, with one notable exception for me. Um, some of the players have played with me for a very long time. They're not all complete rookies. And there's a concept that, that has always hurt me is, well, Dungeon Master Eddie put it here, so it must be important. Now I explained, this person was simply here to give them two something to do well, while well, the rest of you got to go play. I've, I've had situations like this at some point. Uh, I may talk about my buddy Eric and the boat, and, and why his, his phrase is usually never, never get in the boat when it comes to DD campaigns. But people will see something, and nothing is allowed to be part of the scenery sometimes. Even if I'm just trying to make it part of the scenery, it's like, this has got to be important. So the assumption that they took this guy back to their village to try to get him help, and it's like, all right, well, where's he from? He's from, uh, and I'm just riffing off the top of my head because it's a throwaway character. He's from uh, some village up near the Arctic that's not important. Well, it must be. Why else would he be down here adventuring, unless that area is relevant to the plot? It's not relevant to the plot. No, no. We got. Do we know somebody who's up there? Do we have a contact? Does anybody in the village know somebody who's up in that way? And it, it then becomes this domino effect where I, once again, leaving leaving things open where I have my markers for Act One, Act Two, and Act Three. Uh, you know, I have a I have a concept of what needs to happen and what adversaries need to be there. But I don't necessarily bind them to a location unless it's a location the characters are specifically going to hunt. So when all of a sudden this looks like it's turning into an Arctic campaign, you know, I left myself enough wiggle room to to let that happen. So they could go and touch this, like we'll figure this out. We'll go talk to these people. We'll experience this part of the world, and I can still weave the narrative into it. So that the players, whether they realize it or not, have a good deal of agency in how they're going to advance this, this plot. Especially as we're still in Act 1. So there, there's lots of build-up. And as, as you go from Act 1 to 2 to 3, uh, you know the, the options are going to narrow as to where you get the information and resources. But this, this push, which gave the party purpose. Because even with an understanding of their direction, they could be somewhat listless. Um, you know, almost almost directionless at times. This was all right. This person is from here, therefore this is where we have to go. And this, the sense of purpose, is something the party gave itself uh, based on uh, you know a throwaway character and a throwaway session. Um, and sometimes, as dungeon masters, you need to have the flexibility to let that happen. Uh, because once again, if the party, if the party puts itself on the mission, uh, that's engagement, right? They're in there. This is. This is important. They, they figured it out. Therefore, it's important for them to go do that. And it's important to let them have those moments because, once again, they get engaged. Everybody really starts leaning into the adventure and everybody gets more excited about it. And that's you want that kind of engagement as a dungeon master. Now, fourth one, and this, this turned into some long-term world building because it was built around an idea. And, Lord help me, it was a phrase coined by Drew. And he, uh, he was really good at just finding that perfect thing and hitting the bullseye on, on occasion. We were gaming uh, in the early days of 3.5. I was playing a rogue who, uh, I, who I named Zhou Day based on a combination of my favorite characters from the Dynasty Warriors games and, and point in history. Zhou um, Yu, who was... Uh, the best friend and senior advisor to Sun Tse and then most of the Sun family during their early years, Uh, and Peng De, who was one of the great warriors in the north who served uh, Kao Cao, and um, in essence died a very very noble death defending uh, a castle uh, against forces that were going to overwhelm him. So I, I took these names in homage to them. For the character that was was smart and and had that honor, but was also very daring. And Jodet and his uh, compatriots had traveled for a while. One of the things that happened is we found a goblin impaled on some spikes. So I tried to get down there and get him off and blew my reflex or climb check or whatnot, and ended up impaled on the spikes. But I was able to get the goblin off and make the heal check to stabilize the goblin while I was still impaled on the spikes, taking damage. Um, I'd get him off, and then I played to the idea that, you know, in, in the arrogance and hubris of some players, I'm I'm godlike. So the goblin wakes up, it's like, I'm, I'm your deity, I have saved you, I will lead your people out of the darkness. Uh, and at 6th level, I took leadership, I made this goblin my cohort, and he was a cleric. And the DM thought the idea was ridiculous, but but ran with it. Right, because ultimately his powers are always going to be lower level than my powers, and as we were traveling with this, you know, the rest of the party played into this ridiculous idea because it was it was cute and it was fun, um, but our dungeon master had a what we'd call the monster manual problem, right? Where or the dungeon master like the dungeon master's guide says in this environment you're going to run into these um, these potential wandering monsters. And no matter what, and there was some weird inflexibility with the well. The dice say, therefore, I have to do it. Which, um, for dungeon masters out there, no. Just because the dice say something on a random chart doesn't mean you have to do it. I like don't. Don't. If you're going to hit, like, break from it wildly, go all in on that. Uh, but understand, there's there's some flexible reality to some of this. So we would we would we hit a random encounter. Every time it says to roll for a random encounter, like consistently over what was two weeks of, of traveling for these characters, and not only that, he'd roll percentages on the chart, and somehow we were always fighting the top thing on the chart, without exception. This was this was like a weird magic dice scenario, right? The magic dice being wow, these things always seem to roll really high or roll exactly what the, whoever needs them to roll. And a situation that came up is we like there was a turns out there's going to be a cryohydra head with a, whatever the maximum number of heads and so a messenger from from Mount Celestia comes down and says no don't don't go this way go around you can't you can't beat it it's a, the cryohydra it's going to just slaughter you i'm here to warn you not to do this so, despite the fact that we were really gung-ho and we, we charged and t- defeated anything we'd taken on to this point, it's like, okay, fine. Like These things were consistently CR4 higher than us and we us- I think we usually had a three-player party in this campaign. So, fine, we're not going to do this. We're going to go around. So, we go around. The next random encounter comes up. He rolls another maximum-headed cryohider. So, then the Celestial Messenger comes down again to say, you know, you, you can't... Like you can't do this. Like this is this is not whatever. And, and I'm thinking of, you know, phrases from the Dynasty Warrior games. I'm like, no, no. Like the gods have put this in front of us twice. This is divine mandate. We must do this. And then Drew, anytime something would happen, would scream about the divine mandate, and we must engage. And then divine mandate uh, became a thing that whenever something, whenever the dice rolls would put something so improbable in front of us. This wasn't bad dice. This was divine mandate. It was a challenge the gods wanted us to overcome. And, and ultimately, what we were able to overcome, the three of us, consistently, because we as players understood each other and understood how we operated, and we were a very solid team because we we knew what the other players were going to do. Before they did it, so we would position ourselves perfectly to get our flanking and bonuses and be out of the way for for spells, because we had that pattern of behavior, and thus divine mandate became a calling card when when the party would operate so well that it didn't matter what came down in front of us. Uh, there was an example where Drew and I were in a throwaway session. Uh, where we were a pair of dwarves. He was a, a burly fighter type with some very special bits, and I was playing an evoker uh, who'd gone on the master evoker, and we were in a frost giant temple. And in three five, dwarves get a lot of bonuses when dealing with giants. And we went through there, and we ended up in the temple, and there was a high priest, and we were mollywhomping everybody because we just the the sheer number of bonuses you get uh, along with the way we had built our characters and i had uh, taken the craft feats to make our magic items so we were extremely efficient as a a two-man wrecking crew Uh, that even when we desecrated the temple of the frost giant deity and that deity smote us each for 150 we survived because this was the divine mandate to finish purging this temple of the evil, and we we'd gone through and done it. Uh, and then, as as I built my own pantheon later, and, and Joe Day became one of the founding deities of that because of what he had accomplished. He had been, you know, he had ascended to deityhood and uh, had become the the anchor around which I had built my pantheon. Uh, for when players play in my campaigns, every so often something crazy would come up, and if you were Uh, and you know a a worshiper of Jode who had proven to adhere to the principles this was a chance to throw down bonuses that if you engage in this challenge uh, you're engaging in the divine mandate and here's your here's your juice right and when we experienced the divine mandate originally i mentioned there were there were three of us at the table because somebody missed a session so it was a chance to to go through and We simply need to cover distance from plot point A to plot point B. And that's why we went through all these random encounters. And thus the Divine Mandate was born. Alright, and the fifth one, this really ties to helping, you know, it's a chance for DMs to understand the player's motivations a little bit better. When you're doing something where the stakes really aren't on the line, like you're not going to break the store, you're not going to cause any kind of situations... Uh, we were playing through the Underdark module. My friend AJ was running it, um, and he had he he'd run modules before. He's not he's not one of the people who has time to build his own campaign world. And this was a three five module where you start on the surface, and all of a sudden, drow raiding groups are now coming to the surface with great fury, not to steal but to destroy. And what you eventually find out through the course of the story is that. There is a breakaway sect of chaotic evil drow who are worshiping a chaotic evil deity who thinks Loth is, is busy you know her, her the behavior of Loth makes it look like she's running a McDonald's right and they want to they want to do what the drow should be doing for real right like they want to, they want to touch of something real and to really to conquer and show the world what drow can do so you had a civil war between these drow and the Loth drow. Uh, You make your way through all these caverns, you get to the Underdark where these issues are happening, you have a chance to to generate allies to help you on this quest. Ultimately, we get to the final area, where we've gotten what we need to get into the final tower to engage the final villain. Except, in the session where we could do this, one of the players couldn't be there. And it's one thing to move some plot points if somebody can't miss anything... But you don't want somebody to miss the end of a campaign. Like, that final session is is the big wrap-up. It's the big fight with the big boss and the big rewards. And you get to have your your denouement, what happens next. Uh, and it's something every player should be a part of. Like, when I, I spoke about Dale in session four and how he had to step away for life, and I made sure that when we got to that final part of the campaign we set up a day and time when he could be there because he'd been a part of it for like 14 levels. Like He should see how the whole thing concluded. Uh, and AJ did the same thing for a friend of ours, Schwabi who could not be there for this. So what he did is there is a Colosseum in the area and they have uh, notes in the book that if people end up fighting in the Colosseum, almost like it was built in the idea that you either can help level your characters up here at the end or it's a chance to, to gain some more items to go in and do that. Now, one of the random encounters you show up in this area are Baylors, which is once again on the top end of that um, the random encounter chart. And we, we encountered three of them over the course of 10 to 12 encounters moving through the city. Baylors carry a Vorpal longsword and, and a big magical snake headed whip. My character, who had built and who took over a, an abandoned air, a building warehouse up in the main starting area and turned it into an adventurer's guild, I wanted one of those. The dungeon master knew I wanted one of those. He didn't understand why, because it hadn't come up. And every time I tried to, to get one of these things, we had a character who was an archer, who's a Goliath archer, who, with the, the, the various feats, was using a, a gargantuan bow. So he's firing tree trunks at people, and he's firing four of these around. And you do enough damage, the Baylor doesn't just die; he explodes for a hundred damage. Which means, since his items don't get his saving throws anymore, he when he goes, he disintegrates, disintegrates his items. So it's this our guy would oh, look. I can do all this crazy damage. He keeps blowing up the guys and destroying the items I'm trying to get. And I just wanted one. I'm I'm not greedy. So we get into the Colosseum fight. And now my, my Wizard Beef was a Dwarven Conjurer. Because we were playing against Drow, and I needed to take Spell Resistance off the table. And if you play Conjuration, because you're creating something, it's technically no longer Magical Energy once you cast. Uh, three, five, and 3-5, Spell Resistance does not apply to nearly every Conjuration spell. And we'd hit the point where we had 7th level Magic, potentially 8th level Magic at this point. I don't think we'd hit 9 yet. Uh, I know, we, we might have, but I, I had a, a huge list of spells, and what had happened is we, we get in there, and the first thing we fight is a baylor. it's like, alright, we've got boom, 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 he gets tree-trunked to the wall, and kaboom, and we take a bunch of damage, and there's a point where we just started yelling at him, it's like, listen, it's one thing for you to keep blowing up the stuff, when he dies, he blows out for 100 damage, and the rest of us are, are a lot closer to accomplish what we need to do. We don't get to stand 300 feet away and just, you know, ballista him. So there was the sheep issue. I'm sorry. It's like, I guess we're not fighting any more of those. Uh, next up, we, we fought, uh, I want to say, like the, a null demigod. Uh, once again, action economy was on our side, and uh, you, you get to burn through some of these higher-level things relatively quickly. Uh, and then, third, and this is where things, uh, the rule of cool hit, and, and the DM, um, his, his chin hit the ground as he couldn't believe this happened, is there's the aspect of Orcus. In essence, his avatar shows up. And it's in the book that this guy will show up. And it was cool because I had the Orcus, Orcus Mini. Um, we've got to actually use that at the table. And he comes out and he's got his spells and he swings his, his wand, and it's like, okay. So he comes up and it's like it's my turn and I throw I throw a 7th level stun spell at him. It's like if I hit you, you're stunned for one round and then you get a saving throw for all these other effects. For me, the relevant plan this whole time was I just need to hit you with it so you're stunned for one round because then you drop anything you're holding. So Orcus uh, gets hit, drops his wand, I then like throw a blanket over the wand and I, I shove it into a bag of holding. And the DM is staring at me because this is one of those, like, what? It's like, I wanted the wand. I couldn't get a Vorpal Longsword. I want the wand. So then we continue on in the battle, and it is a something that, that frustrated the DM in situations like this. Because he, he believed that this should be a challenge, and he's trying to, to do certain things. That, with Orcus, as written in 3-5, the overall majority of his powers come through his wand. You get the wand away from him, he gets two claw attacks. Right, and at that point, it's like you're welcome to hit me. Right, I will, as a dwarf with a a gajillion constitution, I'll take it all on the chin because I'll be fine. And then, you know, you are more than welcome to tree trunk him, Mister Goliath Archer. So I get this. The next session, we go through. We we go up the tower. We mollywomp the villain. We get back to the bar. The DM's like, "Y'ou don't you don't expect to use this?" It's like, "No, not at all. I'm putting this. I'm putting mounting this on the mantle over the bar." What? Yeah, I wasn't trying to do anything game breaking, AJ. I just this is a really cool story. People are going to come into the bar, into 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 the Beefhouse Adventuring Guild, look at that, and be, oh! And it was a crystallizing moment because with AJ, he had a lot of people at his tables who were, you know, in essence playing against the system, playing against the story to try to to break it, like treating it, dare I say, video game ish. And for me, it was just about the story, right? Because now, I can like I can build uh, like these franchised Beefhouse adventuring guilds into other other campaigns that I run, like the Beefhouse Three Hundred Two or whatnot. You go in and you have some crazy thing mounted over the mantle, right? Which all stems from the legacy of this first one. It was an idea I built that I could then use in my campaigns. And he got the idea that this was about building the story, and he really liked that and it was a chance for us to use that throwaway session before the big goodbye where I accomplished something that would then lead into a greater understanding of of why I play so he, he could understand what his players are getting out of the game and that just because one player leans hard in a direction even if everybody's working well with that player it doesn't mean they all share the same goals it just means the others are willing to be team players and learning to differentiate the idea of being a team player with shared motivations. And that there are different things bringing us to the table in the ways we're trying to have fun. So the, the lesson of these throwaway sessions is uh, it's it's a chance to, once again, you can patch mistakes you've made as a dungeon master. It's a chance to let players uh, try other things they want to try in a relatively consequence-free Manner that isn't going to ultimately affect the campaign. It's a way to provide some, some meaning for people who want to play when a critical mass of the party cannot be there on a given session. Right? It's, uh, you know, it's a chance to, to, to let them catch up on things they might have missed if you build it properly. Uh, it's a chance to, to, to let them have their stories and become part of the legacies of a campaign and a world. Uh, and that's that's how we build, you know the the tabletop RPG environments. People get to tell the stories. Hey, I got to go do this really great thing, this really fun thing. It's like, hey, that sounds cool. I'd like to play. right? And, and there's a chance to then teach other aspiring dungeon masters, these these are the ways we can work that you don't need to be perfect out of the gate. You can make mistakes. Because there are ways to fix those mistakes in such a way that everybody can uh, feel like a bigger part of the campaign. So that sometimes, nowadays, I'll make a quote-unquote mistake so there's an opportunity to fix it later on. uh, Because that gives players that extra sense of involvement, excitement, and ownership. So those throwaway sessions are something to think about. Uh, So once again, this was Dungeon Master Eddie with episode 11, Throwaway Sessions. Uh, Hopefully there's a a good bunch to munch on there and and ruminate on for helping with with campaigns and worlds and and ideas to generate player engagement and um, help figure out why the the crags and the mountains uh, are much better than just a very flat world. Thank you, and I'll see you for episode 12.